We are in, Luke, in Mark, excuse me. We're traveling through Mark, teaching about Jesus. That's what we're doing. So last week, if you were here, we saw Jesus' coronation as king. Very different than the world does coronations. There's no power, there's no crowns, there's not a bunch of dignitaries coming, there's not an army surrounding him, there was no production. He was not on a horse, he was on a donkey, right? He didn't have a robe. In fact, the disciples threw their dirty old coats on the donkey for Jesus to ride in. And then it was this massive, spontaneous eruption where people had this expectation of, this is what he's going to do. But we know what happens. He comes in, looks around, and leaves. And it's like, what? And then the next two events, when you read them, they're a bit shocking. It's like, uh, Jesus, you should rethink your, your way here because these are kind of embarrassing. Right? This, it's a bad beginning for the king, it would seem. And so when I was thinking about this last night, I Googled worst beginnings to a presidency. You know who number one was? It's not who you think. I know who you want it to be, but it's not. It was William Harrison. So William Harrison, at his inauguration, decided not to wear a coat or a hat, and it was like 50 below. So he did not listen to his mother, right? He gave the longest inaugural address of any president in history, over two hours long. Caught pneumonia and died. That's the worst beginning to a presidency right there. Hard to beat that one, right? Number two was Abraham Lincoln takes office, civil war. Big bummer. And then number three was JFK. Took office and then authorized the invasion called the invasion of the Bay of Pigs. If you know what that was, Google it just not during service. Wait, very interesting history, right? So bad beginnings, no doubt. Well, Jesus comes and you see what he does. He curses the fig tree and then cleanses the temple. And it's like, what? Who's your press agent, Jesus? This, this doesn't seem like the best way to begin as king. But here's what you have to know. Mark is doing something so brilliant. The Hebrew scriptures, when they presented Messiah, he wasn't just gonna be the king, but the Hebrew scriptures also presented that Messiah would be the prophet of Deuteronomy 18, and he would be a Melchizedekian high priest. So there's actually three offices that Messiah would fill, prophet, priest, and king. And so we saw the king already, now, what Mark is going to do is he's going to give us two stories because Mark loves to embed his theology into narrative, into a story. And it's our privilege then to read out, oh, this is what he's saying. So he's going to give us two stories that tell us Jesus also comes as the Deuteronomy 18 prophet and the Melchizedekian high priest. And it's just brilliant Mark theology. I love it. So let's jump in. First, the cursing of the fig tree. Mark 11, verse 12. On the following day, day after coronation as king, remember he came and looked around left. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. 
And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And you look down at verse 20. They come back and the tree is dead. So this is the cursed fig tree. This is presenting Jesus as prophet. Seems like bad press. Seems like we would kind of say, man, that poor tree. I mean, trees don't control where they're planted, right? They don't control very much. That poor little tree, huh, this is embarrassing. So time out for just one second. Have you ever had a tree in your yard or on your property that you took out? Did you have a funeral for it? Did you weep and cry, right? He's not cursing a puppy right here. It's a tree. You ever weed your garden? Right? We kill plants all the time. Totally, right? Kill them. You, ever, you like your garden salad? Okay, the lettuce didn't. If we're gonna get all upset about this, then vegans are like mass murderers, all right? So time out, it's a tree, okay? So let's just start there. Note though, it's the morning and it says Jesus was hungry. So you have the coronation of king the night before, the day before. Jesus comes in, looks around the temple and then he leaves. Now it's morning time and he's hungry. What does that tell us? It tells us he didn't stay at somebody's house because Middle Eastern hospitality is record. You would not leave a home hungry. They would feed you if it took everything they had. That's Middle Eastern hospitality. They would have packed a lunch and sent it with Jesus. You know what this tells us? Jesus went and camped out. The king of the universe, after his coronation, goes and he camps out. How crazy is that? So now in the morning time, he's coming back. And I said last week, please remember where he's at. It's this term in verse one, Bethphage or Bethphage. So I've got the word up in Hebrew. Um, well, it's Greek, but it's a Hebrew word. So um, Bet in Hebrew means house. So Bethlehem is the house of bread. So Bet is house, phage is early figs. So this is a region where there was a certain kind of fig tree that when it grew and put out leaves in the springtime, along with that leaf, it would put out a little fruit. And you could come by and you could get early figs. So Jesus comes, it has leaves, it's produced leaves. So Jesus comes, he's like, all right, I'm hungry, let's eat some figs. But they're not there. Please know, this is not about figs, okay? It's not about figs. Sometimes I think we miss that. So a bunch of years ago, one of my daughters was starting to stretch the truth a little bit. So I sat her down. And I decided I was gonna tell her a story. So I told her the story of the boy who cried wolf. And I ended it by saying what the, how the story really ends is the wolf eats the boy. So I told her that, right, the whole thing. I didn't pretty it up. I know my kids will need counseling, but I'm the, I, I do the real world for my kids, right? So, so we get done, I'm like, what do you think about that? She goes, ooh, I really like the little boy. Could you tell me more about the sheep? I was like, it's not about the sheep. It's not telling the truth, right? 
It's not about the fig trees. So this is what prophets did. Prophets very often would use object lessons to teach people because you remember them better. So one of the coolest examples is Ezekiel chapter four, where God says to Ezekiel, here's what I want you to do, Ezekiel. I want you to build a model of Jerusalem. I want you to lay a siege to it. Build a wall around it. Bring in little battering rams. Lay up a mound against it, right? It's like an ancient Lego set. And then I want you to take an iron pan and put it between you and the city and lie on your left side for 390 days. And then roll over and lay on your right side for 40 more days, okay? And then when you're doing that, I want you to Take some, he gives a recipe there. And literally the recipe is what you would eat in a siege when you run out of everything, right? Imagine you couldn't go shopping for 430 days. What's left in your cupboards? Yeah, not much, right? You're eating tomato paste. So it is what's left, right? This is what, you're gonna mix that together, make some flour, make some dough, and then cook it on human dung. And Ezekiel's like, time out. I was good until the human dung. And he's like, could I use cow dung instead? And every time I read it, I think, you need to learn the art of negotiation, Ezekiel. I'd have been like, can we do Chinese takeout? Like, start high, can we meet somewhere in the middle, God? Right? So here's what we've done with that bad recipe. It's right here. Ezekiel bread. Right? The ancients would be like, what? That's garbage. You don't eat that stuff. No, this is good for you. It's biblical bread. No, it's not. Golly, we're just like it. It's not about the bread, right? That's what you got to say. It's not about the fig tree. It's not about the bread. It's a message that you are supposed to get. It's bad times are coming. There's going to be a siege to this city, and you're going to be eating what's left in the cupboard. It's going to be hard, hard times. And prophets did that all the time. They would smash pots together. They would dig a hole in the side of their house and then move all their stuff out through the hole of the house. One guy had to bury his underwear by the side of a river, dig it up a couple years later, and then wear it around, right? It was a lesson, object lessons. This is Jesus as prophet saying, it's not about the fig tree. This is about being all leafy, having foliage without any fruit. It's look the part, but not be the part. That's the point in this whole story. Because there's a bunch of people that are around Jesus right now that are all about looks, but they could care less about actually being something. And so Jesus, in the book of Matthew, referred to them as whitewashed tombs. Hey, you're painted on the outside, but the inside is dead, decaying, and cursed. You're all about leaves, but you could care less about fruit. So what does this mean for us? First, corporately, as a church, like as a church, are we hyper-concerned about how we look, how people view us, their opinions of us. Are we super careful about that? 
because I've said this and I've said it for a long time. I think the Achilles heel of the American church in the 21st century will be, hey, like us, accept us, right? And because of that, what can happen inside the church is then there's a real fear of saying anything that might get us branded with the scarlet letter. So then, hey, don't say that because you might be a homophobe. Don't say that because you might be a two-bathroom bigot. Hey, don't say that because you might be a transphobe, right? So there's all this kind of fear now, like, oh, don't say any of those things because maybe we won't be accepted and we want to look leafy even if we're not fruitful. So we have to be really careful. And if you watch denominations that make that decision, what happens to them is unbelievable. It's like they signed their death certificate. When you start saying, all we care about is looking something, leafing out, but we don't really care about being fruitful, look out, look out. You know what makes the church attractive to the outside world? It's not us agreeing with everything they say. You know what makes us attractive to the outside world? Jesus Christ. When you and I represent him well, when we have the same sacrificial love that he has, when we still, when we are velvet steel, it's my favorite way of putting it. We're not crass, we're not rude, but man, we are steel. I don't think the world is looking for another person to give them the God fairy love that just affirms and says, whatever you think is great or however you feel right now is awesome. I don't think they need that. They need someone that stands up with a holy, ferocious love that says, I love you too much. I'm gonna invest in you and I'm gonna give everything to you like Jesus has for me to show you how much this holy, ferocious love means. And I'm gonna tell you the truth no matter what. Even if you don't like me right now, because I'd rather be fruitful and full of leaves. That's what it tells me. And I have this article at home and it's about the big attractive churches that are, they're on the news all the time. And all the cool people kind of go to it and what the, what the article said was this, those churches have between an 80 and 90% rollover rate per year, right? I just say, that is a curse. Here's why. It's a hobby. It's come here and look leafy. Come here and look at, oh, look how leafy that guy is. Well, guess what? If it's a hobby, man, you're gonna find a better hobby real quick for Sunday morning. I bought a boat, man, it's really fun out there. I'm gonna do that instead, right? no. What makes Christianity attractive? What makes us strong and fruitful is when we present actually what we have, the fruit we have. You can have reconciliation with the Father. You can have your sins and iniquities forgiven. You can have a peace that passes understanding. You can be given the very spirit of God that will dwell inside of you and redeem you and refashion you into what you actually most want. We offer you joy indescribable. We offer you a way back to Eden. We offer you king, queen in training right now that will echo out into eternity. We offer the truth. We offer freedom. That's what we do. It's a warning to us. Am I more leafy or am I more fruity? What am I as a church? And then number two, I have to internalize it. What about me personally? Because I have this text and it's a prophet. And the prophet says this, it's Amos chapter five. And I think about this one quite, quite often for me personally. He says this, 
This is God speaking. I hate. Hate's a strong word. We soften that, don't we? Like we'll say, well, I prefer. Or I would rather. Or maybe you should consider. Right? Like in our house, we don't let our kids say hate. Like, hey, don't, that's too strong. God didn't check with me. I hate. I despise your feasts. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies when you get together. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice, Mizpah, roll down like waters, and righteousness, Sadakah, like an ever-flowing stream. Here's what God is saying. You guys, you guys, I'll modernize it, 21st century. You guys are coming to church, he's saying to the people of Amos' day. And you're singing the songs. And you're putting some money in the offering plate. And you're doing all this, but there's zero fruit. There's no righteousness and there's no justice. And I hate it. You're not fooling God. God's not fooled. He's not like, man, I thought Matt was a terrible dude, but he's in church right now. And he's sitting there. He's like, wow, that was a profound thought. I must meditate on that when I go home. Praise, he's raising his hand. I guess I was wrong about Matt. Cancel him from the curse list. You're not tricking God. That's what he's saying. And so what God, and if you keep reading this, especially on verse 26, God says, listen, I know what you did on Saturday and Friday and Thursday and Wednesday and Tuesday. And Monday, you're not tricking me. Don't treat me like a fool. I hate it when you do that. You're leafy, but there's no fruit in you. You're treating God like an idiot. Instead, what we're supposed to do is we come to church and we say, Father, my heart is cold towards you and I hate it. Father, this past week, has been a bummer and I'm saddened by it because I know there's so much more for me. Change me. We beat our breasts like the publican saying, Father, have mercy on me, a sinner. Luke 18. Not the tax collect, not the, rather the Pharisee who was like, I tithe, I fast, I'm a good dude. No, we did the opposite. I wish I was more fruitful. God, help me. Sometimes I care way too much about people's opinion. Lord, help your opinion to be so strong in my life that I don't care about them anymore. I don't wanna be a men pleaser. I wanna be a Jesus pleaser. That's the warning the prophet Jesus gives to you and me. Are we all about fruit, righteousness, and justice? Or are we all about looks, looking leafy? Prophet Jesus. Then next he comes as high priest. Verse 15, and they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And, he was, and when he was teaching them and saying to them, 
Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when the evening came, they went out of the city. He cleanses the temple. Not sure I would hire him to clean, but he's got a radical way. So let me try to modernize this again. This is Passover week. This is the biggest festival, the biggest feast Israel has. You read ancient accounts of this, hundreds of thousands of people would descend upon the city of Jerusalem. And all of them needed to make sacrifice. All of them needed to do this. So just massive. The only way I can modernize it, it'd be like this. It'd be like Black Friday at Walmart, right? Where people get trampled for a $25 flat screen TV. So Jesus walks in to that. Now remember verse 11 of Mark 11. After the coronation, it says Jesus went to the temple, looked around, and then left. That's really important. Because Jesus is not showing up to the temple and going off half cocked here. Like, what in the world's happening? No way. Jesus had seen this scene the night before. He had left. I think he didn't stay at someone's house because he was so grieved by it. And he had prayed and fasted all night saying, Father, what do I do? This is wrong. What do I do? That's why he's hungry. And the message was, clean house. Now why? Because the temple, the temple is hugely important. It really goes from Genesis all the way to Revelation. The temple was the overlap between heaven and earth after the sin, right? It was a space where you could meet God, right? It was a hot spot of God's presence. Read the Old Testament. Where the temple was, God's kavod, his glory would descend. It was a hot spot of God's presence. And so people could come there and they would make an offering. And the offering was this. The offering provided a clean moment where you could get into the hot spot of God's presence. Right? We already know this. When something really important is gonna take place, you gotta prepare for it, right? So if you need heart surgery, are you doing it in your barn, right? When a doctor does heart surgery, can he pick his nose and then keep working on you? No, it's gotta be a really clean space because there's really important things happening. That's what the temple was saying. Some really important heart surgery is happening right here. So it's a temple, it's a hot spot of my presence and you come in with an offering that makes a clean moment, a clean little place for you and me to have fellowship, right? So that's this really, really important place. Well, a couple years before Jesus, this guy named Caiaphas, who was part of the ruling class of the temple, he was like, wow, a lot of people come here. I can make some cash off this deal. So before what they had done is they'd kind of done their thing outside the temple. But Caiaphas moved that whole thing into what's called the court of the Gentiles. Do you know what the court of the Gentiles was? It was outreach. 
It was missions. It was, hey, nations, come. It was what Israel's whole call was. Genesis 12, the promise to Abraham. In your seed, all nations will be blessed. It was a place that would be an outreach. It was a place for the nations to come and pray and to come and meet with Yahweh, the one true God. And guess what they turned it into? Black Friday at Walmart, right? Which is so fascinating because Black Friday at Walmart is what? What are we celebrating? What are we anticipating celebrating? The highest of all days in the Christian faith, the incarnation of Jesus, right? Like, oh, man, are we much different than them? Mm, not really, not really. So here's what Caiaphas had done. He turned that into this craziness by two things. Number one, you had to get a temple-approved sacrifice. So the little land that you raised and you knew and you poured your heart into knowing this is my heart's here. And this is gonna provide the clean moment where I can have fellowship with my father at the temple. They bring that lamb and ah, that one's not good enough. You have to buy one of our lambs. But those lambs would be 10, 20 times the price of a normal lamb. And then secondly, they had money changers. Because some of the money that people would use would have an image on it. And the 10 commandments says, don't make an image. So what the temple people said was, you can't use your money here. You have to exchange your money for temple money, but it made your money worth, worth about as much as a Russian ruble, right? Not much. So they made extravagant amounts of money off the people that were coming here. So Jesus comes, sees it, takes off for a full night of prayer and fasting, I believe. Comes back the next day, with a whip. And it says specifically here, the pigeons. Why is it named the pigeons? Everyone needed a sacrifice, a bull, a goat, a lamb, or a pigeon. The rich people could afford a bull, no problem. Middle class, you could buy a goat. Working class could buy a lamb. But the poor people, the poor people, all they could afford was a pigeon. It was God's way of saying, hey, yeah, it's costly to come into my presence because of the great price Jesus will pay. It's costly. It's that picture for us, but it will not be too expensive for anyone to come into my presence. You can buy a pigeon for a couple of cents, but now those pigeons were too much money, so the poor people couldn't get in anymore. What happens when church becomes a business? Who always gets run over? the poor and the broken and the outreach and the missions. That's what gets broken. And so Jesus sees all this and he's, ah, oh, ah. Oh. He clears the temple of every obstacle that had been put in front of people to prevent them from fellowshipping with God. That's what the high priest does. What does that mean for us? Three things. Number one, Jesus still cleanses temples. What do you mean, Matt? I've been to Israel. There's no temple anymore. Right. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says this. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Right now, you and I 
are the overlap, the outpost of heaven. It's you and me. We're that overlap. Amazing. That we have been made clean, not just for a moment, for eternity, the book of Hebrews says, because of the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. It's brilliant. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your bodies. We're the temple, and Jesus still cleanses us. Do you know that? He'll pursue us down and cleanse us. And that's a good thing. The best example I've ever seen of this was I was in Zambia in 2004. I was there visiting this orphanage called For Hearts and Souls. And the orphanage, all it did was take babies with AIDS. So AIDS was a huge problem then. They just took every, the entire orphanage was babies with AIDS. Brilliant. The pastor that worked there, his name is Pastor Ed, had the orphanage and then did a church in Lusaka, Zambia. One of the best men I've ever met. Stayed in his house for about two weeks. One of my favorite men, just laughing, his family, incredible. So they were growing, they were busting at the seams at this point. So they said, hey, we're looking at buying some land and building a bigger place to house these children. You wanna take a look at it? I said, I'd love to. So we end up driving out of Lusaka. We rented a minivan. We're driving out of Lusaka and we have to be 45 minutes from Lusaka on this little road and we're driving along and I see this car that's passing us and it's like 10 in the morning and it's passing us and I look over and I see this guy. He's got the biggest beer bottle I've ever seen in my life, like a mini keg. And he's just, he's down. He kind of looks over at me, he's down in it and it looks like he's already had one down already. So I'm like, whoa, okay, well, all right, so be it. And then all the windows are down in every car because it's hot. And he goes up, gets a little bit closer. Then he and Pastor Ed make eye contact. And he just goes, Stephen. It was a deacon at his church. Yes. And we pulled over and there was a long conversation Ed and Stephen had there on the side of the road. Praise God when that happens. You know why? Because Hebrews 12 would say, it means you're not a bastard. Literally, that's what it means. You are one of my kids. You're my son, you're my daughter. I'm not gonna let you get away with it because I love you too much. He still purifies temples. Be very, 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 very worried if that's not happening. Because Romans 1 says this three times. It says, God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. Man, when God just says, go ahead, sin. Oh, nothing more dangerous in the world. I'm so glad Jesus still purifies temples. He still comes to me and woos me because I'm his son. Number two, it's church, not business. This is church, not business. Do you know that? Church, not business. And my hope and my prayer, I pray it all the time, my hope and my prayers that inside here, what happens inside here is Psalm 27, four. Listen to this text. One thing have I asked of the Lord and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. 
Now, I enjoy people telling me, hey, great message. You know, I, that, that everyone needs encouragement. Totally. I love that. But you know what I really love? Is when someone says, I met Jesus today here. 1 Corinthians 14, 25, of a truth, God was in this place. He met me. It's my prayer. It's what I desire right here. And that's not easy. It's not easy keeping this a sanctuary. Do you know that? For 16 years, I'll tell you, I don't know how many conversations I've had with people that always are like, hey, why don't we do this? If you've noticed, like we don't do a lot of announcements. In fact, I really don't want any announcements in here. We don't do a lot of business meetings. We don't time out halfway in praise and be like, okay, hey, church business, we're gonna take care of some stuff. We don't do that. You know why? Because when we built this place, and you can ask people, over and over I said, I want this. I think there needs to be a place that is purely dedicated to the glory of God in the name of Jesus Christ, period. Nothing else. Nothing else. That we look out and what do we see? The beauty of God's creation. There needs to be a space that's purely given to him, right? And so well-meaning people will want to talk to me. They'll be like, hey, you know, at the church that we left, we used to do this there. We had these little videos. We critiqued the latest movie. We had budget meetings. We had, and I always want to just say, yeah, but you're here now. But I don't. That would be me. <laughs> and I just say, yeah, I get it. And, and that can happen out there in the foyer. I say, do whatever you want out there. This is God's space here. This is God's space. And I'm going to fight until I get drug off this stage to keep this God's space. Because that's what I need. What changed my heart was not some announcements in church. It wasn't a business meeting in church. What changed my heart was not someone critiquing a movie. What changed my heart was when I saw how beautiful Jesus is. That changed my heart. And my hope and my desire is to continually present to you how beautiful Jesus is because beauty transforms people. It changes us. This is church. It's not business. And then number three, Jesus cleared all the obstacles like he says, he wouldn't let anyone carry anything through the temple. No more. He cleared all the obstacles. Isn't that good news? He cleared all the obstacles for people to get in. That is such good news. And yet, here's what we do all the time. We subtly rebuild obstacles to people. Do you know that? Rebuild obstacles for people to get into fellowship with God. Here's the one I grew up with, and it took me a long time to shake it. And it was this, and maybe it was just the way that I'm programmed. I don't know what it was, but I got this idea from going to church as a kid that unless I was perfect, I could not come into God's presence. That if I had any sin in me, then I could not be in a holy God's presence. Have you ever heard that before? That because God is so holy, that there's any kind of sin, any kind of anything, that can't be in God's presence. It's why on the cross, when the sins of the world were poured out on Jesus, the Father had to turn his back on the Son because a holy God cannot be in the presence of sinful people. Have you heard that before? I heard that. Well, is that true? Do you know what set me free? 
when I actually read the Bible. I read about the first two sinners, Adam and Eve, treason, rebellion, disobedience, right? How does God treat the very first two, sin two sinners in the Bible? What does he do? Read Genesis 3.8. He comes to them. 3.9. He calls them. He clothes them. He gives a promise to them. Well, that seems different. Like, wait a second. You know how many times I've taken people that had the same struggle as I have and just took them to Genesis 3 and read it for them? Like, wait a second. It seems like, it seems like God's in the presence of sinners right there. And then I always ask like, people that want to argue with me on this. I say, okay, Jesus, is he God in the flesh? And they know where I'm going right then with it. He is God in the flesh. Was he in the presence of sinners? Yes, all the time. That's all people were, right? He was constantly being accused by the really good people. You eat with all the wrong people, sinners and tax collectors and publicans, right? And he is God in the flesh. He is the express image of the Father. Oh my goodness. Look at Isaiah, right? God shows up, Isaiah chapter six. The temple is literally crumbling from the glory of God. And what does Isaiah say? I'm so glad I confessed all my sins so you could be here. He goes, I am a man undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I was saying bad things just five minutes ago. What does God do? Takes a coal, touches his lips, and cleanses him. Man, I'll tell you what, the first 25 years of my life was running from God because I thought, mm, he doesn't like sinners, and I'm a sinner. He's mad at me. I better get away from him. I'm going to run and hide, right? It's the attack of the enemy all the time on us. God is angry at you. You're a terrible Christian. You can't pray. He'll never listen to you. For 25 years, I ran from God because of that. And then I read the Bible. And Jesus became so beautiful to me. Oh my goodness, he clears obstacles. Oh my goodness, I come in, not because I'm great, but because Jesus has created a clean space for me that lasts from now through eternity. Ah, I can come in. I can come boldly to the throne room of grace and obtain help. When do I need help? When I'm strong and doing it? No, when I'm beating my breast saying, God have mercy upon me, a sinner. Oh, that set me free. Don't rebuild the obstacles. The prodigal son, the father rushes out to him. Does the father get to him and be like, bro, you stink, man. Oh, pig, get away. No, embraces him, robes him, throws a feast for him. Peter denies three times. What does Jesus do? Seeks him out and restores him three times. Oh, oh, he has cleared the obstacles. Do you know that? I hope you do. It changed my life. And we still create obstacles. We take communion every single Sunday here. And I get emails from people like, I don't know how you do communion there, you know? And I don't mind them. But I think there's a hangover where we put an obstacle up to this right now. So if you have any kind of Roman Catholicism in your background, you know this. The Catholics have what's called a closed table. It means unless you are baptized in the Catholic church and unless you are in good standing with the Catholic church, 
You cannot celebrate, they call it mass. You can't take communion. It's closed the table. And so out of the Reformation, so many good things came out of the Reformation. But you read some of it and you're like, that, that seems like a hangover from Roman Catholicism, infant baptism. Like, really? And I've read it and I've studied it, but really? It seems like a hangover in some churches. And then some churches, they don't have what they call closed communion, but here's what they do. They call, it's called fencing the table. And you fence the table as this. You say, okay, so people can partake. If you agree with us theologically, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and you're not right now walking in disobedience. So you'll hear that in churches. And people even, I didn't hear you say that, Matt. And so I say, pretty simply, I have a paper on it if somebody wants it. I mean, it'll put you to sleep, but you can have it. I'll just, you know. I just say two simple things to people. I say, number one, I think communion is real simple. It's a meal with the king. And when I read the gospels, Jesus was always eating with the wrong people. And it made the right people mad over and over and over again. It's an invitation to eat a meal with your king. And then secondly, I say, the first dudes that got communion, were they believers? I mean, technically they weren't. Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet for them. Right? They were in some kind of in-between, yet they believed Jesus, no doubt. But I mean, were they technically saved yet? They hadn't been given God's spirit. Like there, there's, you, we can argue all day on that one. But there's one guy you can't argue with, Judas. The only guy in the Bible that's ever said, it's better he would not be born. Luke 22 makes it clear. Jesus in communion breaks it off and hands it to him. Judas. Why? I think it was the invitation of the king. Judas, change your mind. Judas, change your mind. It's why, it's why when Judas approaches him to betray him with a kiss, he says, friend, what do you seek? It's time after time. Such a good, generous king saying, you can change. And so when we take communion at Edgewater, it's a meal with your king. It's outreach. It's come. There's none righteous, no, not one. He's created the clean space. He's given it to you for eternity because of him. We do this in remembrance of him, not how theologically sound I am, not how great I've been, not how holy I am. I do it in remembrance of him. And so Jesus today, we hold the unspeakable gift your life for ours. And we have now become the temple of the Holy Spirit. I pray as we eat, it would strengthen every person in here. You would be our King and our Savior. You would be our Lord and our master. Let's eat together. And we drink we drink of cleansing 
We drink of you coming into these temples, driving out every sin and every weight that so easily besets us so that we can run with endurance the race that's set before us, keeping our eyes upon you, the author and finisher of our faith. Cleanse these temples. Let's drink together. Amen. So we pray here because Jesus said, my house shall be a house of prayer. We begin with prayer for all nations and we end with prayer. So if you came in today and you are feeling weary and heavy laden with something, we'll sing a song. After that song, there'll be people standing right up here that would love to pray for you. Receive help in your time of need. You don't have to do anything other than just say, I need help. We also do baptisms every Sunday. We got a new baptismal. It'll be interesting to see who's in it one of these Sunday mornings. We'll have to figure out everything on that. But it works a lot better, keeps it warm. We had some really cold baptismals where people are serious, like, all right, you're serious, okay. Praise God. But I'm not baptizing. Chad, have fun. (laughs) (laughs) Baptism is saying, Jesus, yes, you're my savior. And you're also my king. And if you obey something, I say, yes, sir. And he says, be baptized. So maybe today is your day to be baptized. Maybe you don't know where you stand with Jesus. There'll be somebody over by these doors right after this. And they'd love to explain to you what it means to accept Jesus and what baptism means as well. And we can baptize you today. Would you stand up for this final song?